Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother, Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come, Follow Me lesson for May 4th through 10th, 2020. This is covering Mosiah chapters 11 through 17. And now, let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Scriptures, Hooray! I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Oh, it's, this is going to be a great one, too. I'm looking forward to it. So now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 41 minutes, 28 seconds. Oh, that's, that's a, a long longer one. longer than usual. Yeah, this is, I think this might be the longest one so far this year. But before you get scared, while it's still a little more than five minutes a day, it's five minutes and 55 seconds of reading per day. You can do this. <laughs> that, that, you can handle that extra pers- 55 seconds. That's a good perspective. Well, just a chapter a day. we got seven chapters, right? We can do so it. So you can do it. So let's jump into it. This is one of the most dramatic and interesting parts of the Book of Mormon. I'm really excited to go over it. Yeah, so if you could just keep this in mind, that we have the same time we're going to be talking about Abinadi and King Noah today. We have got King Benjamin in the north and at the same time as King Benjamin, we've got Noah and Abinadi happening in the south. And just for contrast, if we were to just to take a peek back to Mosiah chapter 2, look at these phrases that King Benjamin announces to his people that he has not sought for gold or silver or any manner of riches from his people. He's not put them into dungeons. He's not murdered them or plundered or stolen. Uh, he hasn't committed adultery. Uh, he hasn't committed or encouraged the people to commit any kind of wickedness. He hasn't laden them with taxes. All of that stuff that King Benjamin didn't do, King Noah and his people do. So there's just a polar opposite happening here in the South. So let's get into it. Chapter 11. Chapter 11. You know, there's a a real interesting start that we kind of talked about at the end of last episode. If you'll remember in Mosiah chapter 10, verse 22, Zenith told us that he conferred the kingdom upon one of his sons. That's very vague. We didn't know who, but yeah, he was just one of his sons. Uh, So in Mosiah chapter 11, verse 1, we are told that Zenith conferred the kingdom upon Noah. One of his sons. <laughs> well, so we, we were first person. You know, the last two chapters we had, 9 and 10, were written in the first person. This was Zenith's record, and it was first person written. Now we're into third person. Somebody else is narrating this, is abridging this. And, yeah, what a phrase. You bring up an interesting point there. I'm sure that Noah could not be troubled to keep a record. I Somebody had to, but— It wasn't going to yeah. be him. yeah. All right, so we we learn uh, as far as kings go, not so good. No, we've got a list of things here. We do have that they had many wives and concubines, and that's the thing that people keep trying to get to, and the prophets keep trying to keep them from. And uh, they did all manner of whoredoms and wickedness in the sight of the Lord. Yeah, and then, then we have the taxes. Then we go the, on to taxation, right? The taxes, one-fifth of all they possessed. What kind of social system is he offering? Is he offering highways I, 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 and I don't social know. security? Yeah, for, just for some of you, uh, uh, one-fifth would be 20%. That would actually be an improvement. But <laughs> Well, 
Except he's, this seems to be something he's pocketing for his own selfish purposes. Oh, very much so. And again, the gold and the silver, that's what he wants from the people. Uh, and it's taking him to do, in verse 4, it says, All this did he take to support himself and his wives and his concubines and the priests and their wives and concubines. And so he's got to keep the his buddies of the happy. kingdom. Yeah, it's, this is selfish taxation. The extreme. Of the yeah, just the opposite of what King Benjamin's doing. Well, and speaking of the priest, you mentioned the priests, mentioned specifically in verse 5 that he put down all the priests that had been consecrated by his father, father we know to be a righteous man, certainly, Yes. and consecrated new ones in their stead. I wonder what uh, was wrong with the specifically old ones. lifted up on the pride of their hearts. I got to imagine that the old ones weren't, how shall we say, cool <laughs> enough for him. <laughs> certainly not supportive. Yeah, they didn't party with him, I, yeah. I, I would imagine. Now, the phrase consecrated does seem to indicate an authoritative act, something that would be binding. We know that Alma, who we'll, we'll meet, uh, when he becomes righteous, he has the priesthood. And it may have been from this experience of being consecrated. They can be consecrated in an authoritative way and choose not to uh, be righteous. This consecration, I've certainly speculated, there's something that seems to be special about it. We'll talk about it more when we get into later chapters, but it may have something to do with Amalekite. Remember at the end of Omni, Amalekite's mm. brother went with them. Amalekite's lineage was the Jacob lineage. Jacob and Joseph were consecrated as priests and teachers. If, like the kingship, that seemed to have been handed down within a particular family, if that was the case, there may be a priesthood from Jacob that would have been passed down through Amalekai would have had it, and that would have given Zenith the authority that he would need to function in that capacity. That's just a guess, but there's something, something's going on there. No, very interesting. So verse 6 kind of sums it up with this phrase, that the people labored to support laziness, idolatry, and whoredoms. Really kind of a sad state of affairs. In other words, there's not really a constructive tone to the people's labor. They are laboring to make life easy for King Noah and his priests. And it's really interesting that, ironically, far far away we have King Benjamin, who is laboring with the people. Yeah, He is laboring alongside them so that they won't yeah. be bogged down with heavy taxes. Yeah, and incredible opposites between the two. I was just thinking of the word exceedingly. They didn't just labor to support iniquity, which is bad enough. They labored exceedingly at the end of verse 6 mm. to support iniquity. No good. Yeah, good point. Now, when we talk about labor, we mentioned several things that are included in what, what is meant by this production of labor. And in verse 8, we have a list of metals, you know, gold and silver and ziff. What is ziff? Well, the honest answer is we don't know. But if you're curious there has been some research done on it, and one of the more thorough papers that I've seen on it is a man named Jerry D. Grover Jr., who did an article called Ziff Magic Goggles and Golden Plates, Etymology of Ziff and Metallurgical Analysis of the Book of Mormon Plates. It's actually not quite as boring as it sounds. I actually <laughs> found it really interesting, but Jerry makes a really good case that the word ziff probably derives from a Paleo-Hebrew word ziff, Z-Y-F, that refers to a gold-gilded metal 
to produce the illusion of gold or to use in like religious buildings. Uh, this is a situation where, you know, something out in the public, you don't want people stealing gold off your building. So you put something on it that looks like gold. You have metal that is gilded with gold. He makes a really compelling case for a gold gilded copper or a tumbaga, as it's called. It's very interesting. We'll put a link up if you want to research that further. But let's go on. Yeah, and that's what you mentioned about that is right on track with what they're using it for. Noah's building. Now, you can see on the map here, we've got our central city. The place they went down to inherit is Nephi. Nephi was a walled city. There was a palace there. There was a temple there. And he is not only building buildings, but he is making other ones more elaborate, a spatial, a spacious palace, a throne in the midst. Uh, you know what? I'll, here, this little picture, this is um, a picture I painted for a card game a long time ago. And this is a great example of why it's important to pay close attention to the scriptures. You notice how I made the throne on Noah? It's a stone throne. And that's not what he had. You can see right here, it was made out of wood. So somebody missed the ball on that. <laughs> but he, he, so there's all sorts of stuff going on. And the walls of the temple, fine brass and copper and all sorts of seats for the high priest ornamented with breastwork and for the purpose that they could sit there, rest their arms on the breastwork and judge the people or speak lying words to them, as it says in verse uh, 11 at the end. So they built a tower near the temple. Now this tower is going to allow them to oversee the lands. You'll remember last chapter, the land of Shilom, which is one of the lands it's going to look over, got attacked two times by the Lamanites. The Lamanites are coming out of Shemlon. So from that tower now, he can see over into the adjacent land of Shilom and further into Shemlon, and that's going to come in handy later. Spoiler alert, that'll be next week. So anyways, lots of stuff going on. One other thing that's interesting here is that there was also building projects in Shilom, but more particularly north of Shilom, there's a hill. Now, this hill north of Shilom pops up in the story at numerous times. It was first talked about here, actually, seeming to reference a story we no longer have where Mosiah and his people, this is Mosiah the first, are leaving the land of Nephi and they seek refuge on this hill. Now, refuge is something that is described, or I'm sorry, place of resort, had been a resort for the children. But if you look at resort, how it's used in the rest of the Book of Mormon, it's almost exclusively used in a military sense. So there seemed to be some kind of an attack. They were able to use that hill as a resort at the time that they were fleeing out of the land. So he builds a uh, tower on that hill. I don't know if it's a lookout tower or a monument, but something. That hill's important. A lot of people, when they come down to the land, stop at that hill and then disembark into uh, the land of Nephi from there. So anyways, there's the building projects, which he, as it says at the end of 13, was able to obtain by the taxation of his people. I don't know how many of those buildings were of benefit to the people, but it came to pass that it describes again that he placed his heart on riches, spent his time with riotous living, with his wives, his concubines, and so also did his priests spend time with harlots. Now, you've got wives, you've got concubines and harlots. This is pretty much the classic. Again, at the same time, we've got King Benjamin. He's preaching to the people how to get rid of and not emphasize the carnal man, the natural man. 
but instead to become a man of God, a man of Christ, to embrace our divine, to yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit from uh, Mosiah 3.19. And here these guys are, they're the polar opposite of that. And then we've got, it came to pass, they planted vineyards roundabout in the land. They built wine presses, made wine in abundance. Therefore, he became a wine-bibber and also his people. Now, I had been told that wine-bibber meant like a bibber was someone who consumed a lot of, and I thought you could use that for anything, so I used to reference that you could be a chocolate milk-bibber. But (laughs) according to the Webster's 1828 the, the wine bibber is pretty much exclusively talking about alcoholic beverages. But the first definition is it's the same thing as a tippler. And a tippler is one who habitually indulges in excessive use of spiritus liquors, a drunkard, a sot. We need that word more often, sot. I, I agree. It, however, signifies often a person who habitually drinks strong liquors without absolute drunkenness. Whatever the case, and keep in mind that in the ancient world of the Israelites, wine was considered a blessing from God. This was something to be celebrated, and yet they were using it in excess and in abuse, because the Bible, although it celebrates wine, it never celebrates drunkenness. So that excess is just disrespectful to the blessings of the Lord. So what we're saying is whether Noah could hold his liquor or not is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. The fact is he was disrespectful. Now, some of you may be, I don't know if anybody's concerned about this today, the fact that wine was allowed in the Bible and not today. And what I have to say to that is they didn't get to eat bacon in the Bible and we get bacon. So given the choice between wine and bacon, I'm okay with bacon. I've never had to worry about throwing up in the morning over bacon. <laughs> yes. Of course, maybe I haven't eaten enough. <laughs> you haven't been a bacon bibber. <laughs> Anyways, there, there we go. That just gives us a picture of the kind of people that we're talking about and what they're doing to the rest of the world out there. So starting in verse 16 to verse 19, we have another attack by the Lamanites. King Noah doesn't handle it very well, but they do win. And they're not grateful to God for that. They say that uh, this great victory, uh, verse 19, they did boast in their own strength, saying that their 50 could stand against thousands of the Lamanites. Considering what we know about Zenith's situation, they were only with God's might able to defend themselves. And this was a small attack. Boy, this is not a good... They're surrounded with the enemy. This is not a good place to be... um, mouthing off. Well, into all of this comes a man whose name was Abinadi. Now, verse 20 tells us that there was a man among them. He was one of the people. He didn't come from the outside. He was one of the people. What this tells us about Abinadi in verse 20, uh, he went forth among them. He began to prophesy, saying, Behold, thus saith the Lord, and thus hath he commanded me. So here's a person who the Lord can reach out to and say, you know, who can I get to do this task? Who can I get to do this really hard task? Abinadi, he's the guy. If I call out to him, he will We can't get any of the other guys. They're wine-bibbers. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Now, there's something, too, about Abinadi as we go forward. I don't know. In the ancient world, you don't have the opportunity to just learn 
with the kind of variety that we have. You know, we go to school, we learn reading and writing and arithmetic. In the ancient world, you didn't have that kind of luxury. Or if you did, you had it because you had wealth and you didn't have to be engaged in other things. But your average person, you know, if you're a fisherman, you spend all day doing things related to that. If you're a baker, the same thing, a cobbler or whatever your job is, a farmer, you're busy all the time. You don't have time to learn to read, much less learn to memorize chapters of scripture. So the fact that he knows it, some people think that it's just given to him by the spirit of prophecy. I don't think so. I think this is somebody who understands the scriptures very deeply. And for him to have spent that kind of time studying them, I wonder if maybe Abinadi was one of the priests who was put down by King Noah. I don't know who else would have had the time to have learned and know the kinds of things that he knows. So just consider that going forward, there's something special about him, whatever that is. So he preaches to them, and then he gives them a really important warning. I mean, all of his speech is a warning, but in 23, it shall come to pass that except this people repent and turn unto the Lord their God, they shall be brought into bondage. Now, that's important because that's the promise. Here are the consequences for your actions. In order to not have those consequences, you have to repent now. This is going to play a part in what happens to Alma and his people later on, which we'll talk about. But I just want you to put a star by that because nobody going forward does. Therefore, there are consequences for that. And 24, yea, and it shall come to pass that when they shall cry unto me, this is when they're in bondage, I will be slow to hear their cries. Yea, and I will suffer them that they may be smitten by their enemies. And except they repent in sackcloth and ashes and cry mightily to the Lord their God, I will not hear their prayers. Neither will I deliver them out of their afflictions. And thus saith the Lord, and thus hath he commanded me. So those verses, pay attention to their fulfillment. That was the warning from the Lord. Now it came to pass when Abinadi spoke these words, they sought to take away his life. The Lord delivered him out of their hands. We don't know how exactly. And when the king hears about it in 27, uh, he was wroth. He said, who is Abinadi that I and my people should be judged of him? Or who is the Lord that shall bring unto my people such great affliction? That is deep-seated arrogance. <laughs> uh, yes. You mentioned before, John, somebody else who this sounded like. Yeah, you know, for those who might be familiar with the Exodus story, does this harken back to maybe the Pharaoh of Egypt? And that's not a good sign. The same arrogant approach to the who is the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, when you lift yourself high above the throne of God, Isaiah's got some warnings for you. Uh, yeah, and for him to ask, that, some people say, well, Abin and I must have been a, a nobody because the king, you know, says, who is he? But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, how dare Abinadi say this? You know, who are you to say this to me? Who's the Lord to say this to me? He knows who the Lord is. Look who his father was. I think it's very likely that people knew Abinadi, which will play into the next chapter. Right. It was less about putting down Abinadi and more about lifting up himself. Yeah. Yeah. As you point out, you don't get more arrogant than that. 
It's amazing. All right, so in chapter 12, we start out in chapter 12, verse 1, and it came to pass that after the space of two years, okay, so two years has gone by. Well, and to point out at the end of 11, it says they did not repent. So two years has gone by with no repenting. Right. Things are inevitably gotten worse. That Abinadi came among them in disguise, that they knew him not, and began to prophesy among them, saying, Thus hath the Lord commanded me, saying, Abinadi, go and prophesy unto my, this my people. Um, Abinadi, you just blew your cover. <laughs> oh. So as, as funny as that sounds, I do suspect that the reason he was in disguise is that he's not just some minor quack that came out and said this and then went away. Who would ever remember that guy? I think this is somebody who's got a public presence. And in order to get to the place he needs to, he needed to be in disguise until he got to the place where he was and then testified who he was and what he needed to say. Well, I agree with that. And I certainly agree. If nothing else, I agree with the concept that the Lord does not work in darkness. Yeah. And so he's not trying to deceive the people. He just needs to get to a spot where he can reach them. It does read uh, it a little ironically, funny though. To me. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It's pretty funny to me. Go and prophesy unto this my people. For they have hardened their hearts against my words. They have repented not of their evil doings. Therefore, I will visit them in my anger. Yea, in my fierce anger will I visit them in their iniquities and abominations. So they're in trouble. Yeah. So in verse 2, we've now switched over from the previous announcement, which was, if you don't repent, you will be brought into bondage. Well, two years has gone by. They haven't repented. Verse 2 says that the Lord says, stretch forth your hand and prophesy, saying, thus saith the Lord, it shall come to pass that this generation, because of their iniquities, shall be brought into bondage. The time for repentance is past. They were given mm-hmm. a grace period. They lost it. Now they will be brought into bondage and shall be smitten on the cheek. Yea, and they shall be driven by men and shall be slain and the vultures of the air and the dogs, yea, and the wild beasts shall devour their flesh. Yeesh. What about so, King Noah? Oh, I'm sure he'll be Verse fine. 3. And it shall come to pass that the life of King Noah shall be valued even as a garment in a hot furnace. For he shall know that I am the Lord. Ouch. That's so this is a piece of cloth or like a shirt in the middle of a very hot fire. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so well, and you know, so back good. in Isaiah chapters because we'll be referencing Isaiah coming up, we had that notion of put on your beautiful garments, you know, because you're my people, you've come home. Now he will be valued as what kind of garment? A garment that's in the fire. That's what kind of value he will have as a result of his actions. I don't find those as comfortable. No. Garments in the middle of a fire. So smoky. Yes, they are. So we're in trouble. Yeah, as a matter of fact, the list of trouble in uh, verses 4 through 8 are very Old Testament. Well, okay, we're in the Old Testament, but I mean, they're very (laughs) old world Old Testament. So uh, this notion that that they're going to have sore afflictions and famine and pestilence and I will cause that they shall howl all the day long. It will cause that they shall have burdens lashed upon their backs and be driven and and there's going to be hail and they're going to be, there's this phrase here in verse six, smitten with the east wind. That is a classic Old Testament Bible expression, which honestly doesn't mean anything except 
it, it apparently was used as an expression. We use it in the United States as an expression. You don't want to reap the east wind. And maybe that's an old-timey expression. But what it means is, in the old world, that east wind was what brought heat and dryness and locusts. And just do a search for east wind in uh, the Old Testament. You'll see it always associated with bad things. If you look at the map here, you can see that that east wind is the wind that's coming to Judea or Israel from over the sands of Arabia. It's, I mean, that's all desert there. And that east wind pulls all of that heat and awfulness and it, it uh, destroys crops and it's, it's a horrible sign of doom. So they've got that in here. Again, uh, pestilence and utterly destroy. And I mean, it's just, a, this is not a good list. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up as far as being Old Testament. It would seem clear to me that Abinadi is using this in a figurative context because they're no longer in the old world. You know, they don't have to worry about the sands of Arabia where they are, but they should know what that means. Yeah. And and I'm sure they do. I imagine like us, it, it became an expression. But, you know, that list of things, we don't at least have a record that all of those things happened. And yet they're indicative of the kinds of punishments that the Lord brings upon the wicked. So that's what they have to look forward to. Very much so. And the people listened and they repented and everything was fine. Oh, that's a good story. That is a good story, but that's not this story, unfortunately. Oh, that's too bad. Let's see. Verse 9. And it came to pass that they were angry with him. What? And they took him and carried him bound before the king and said unto the king, Behold, we have brought a man before thee who has prophesied evil concerning thy people and saith that God will destroy them. And he also prophesieth evil concerning thy life and saith that thy life shall be as a garment in a furnace of fire. And again, he saith that thou shalt be as a stock, even as a dry stock of the field, which is run over by the beasts and trodden underfoot. Wait a minute. Did he say that? <laughs> I don't I don't see that. Maybe it was just an editorial. I think it might be an editorial. Next verse. And again, he saith thou shalt be as the blossoms of a thistle, which when it is fully ripe, if the wind bloweth, it is driven forth upon the face of the land. Now they're making things up. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good story. It's kind of like they they don't feel like the king's going to be impressed enough with right. the first part. It, it won't they really got to color it up. He won't get angry enough at garment in a furnace of fire. So we yeah. really got to rile him up. Yeah. And he pretendeth the Lord hath spoken it. And he saith, all this shall come upon thee except thou repent. And this because of thine iniquities. Uh, wow. Yeah. Neat. Next verse. And now, O king, what great evil hast thou done? Or what great sins have thy people committed that we should be condemned of God or judged of this man? And now, O king, behold, we are guiltless. And thou, O king, hast not sinned. Therefore this man has lied concerning you, and he has prophesied in vain. And behold, we are strong. We shall not come into bondage or be taken captive by our enemies. Yea, and thou hast prospered in the land, and thou shalt also prosper. Behold, here is the man. We deliver him into thy hands. Thou mayest do with him as seemeth thee good. Well, well. Yeah, that's something. 
It really kind of is a window not only into the arrogance of King Noah, this is really more of a window into the depravity of the people. Yeah, you know, uh, on one they, hand, you want to say— They have drunk the Kool-Aid, as it were. Yeah, you want to say, well, King Noah, if he hadn't been such a bad influence, but the, there's a reason that he was able to get away with all that he was doing. The people liked it. You know, they—yeah, they, it's a, well, it's a rough situation. they had to know that they were feeding his gluttony, you know? Yeah, yeah. These weren't absent-minded slaves. They were part of the deal. They were yeah. participating. Yeah, afraid so. The trial begins in 17. A trial, if you want to call it that. And uh, <laughs> the first thing he does is uh, casts Abinadi into prison. If you'll recall earlier, King Benjamin didn't put people or in the dungeon. At least you assume he didn't do that for any ridiculous purposes. Uh, he commanded the priests that they should gather themselves together that he might hold counsel with them what he should do. Now, a wise king, of course, would have to bring his counselors in a difficult situation. This isn't a difficult situation, except they have to come up with a crime for him. So what does he do? He gets his friends. He made sure to surround himself with people that would help him in his wickedness. And that's something sometimes we do as well. Sometimes we have surrounded ourselves with people that make it hard to live the life that we want to live, to be noble, to do things that have meaning and purpose. In fact, spoilers, we'll get a clarification of that very problem from Mosiah II later in this book. When we start the reign of the judges, he makes it clear that you cannot dethrone an unrighteous king because yeah. he has his buddies. Yep, you know, and he has he his partners does. in crime. So, and then they begin to question him in verse 19. And they began to question him that they might cross him that thereby they might have wherewith to accuse him. But he answered them boldly and withstood all their questions, yea, to their astonishment. For he did withstand them in all their questions and did confound them in all their words. So let's look at their words. Verse 20. And it came to pass that one of them said unto him, What meaneth the words which are written and which have been taught by our fathers, saying, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people, and he hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. You know, I'm really glad that people don't cherry-pick verses of Scripture to support their false ideals. I'm, yeah. I'm glad that that doesn't happen anymore. Oh, wait. It happens all <laughs> the time. Oh, I caught your tone. You know, it seems to be the reason that they picked this a set of verses from Isaiah. People have speculated a couple of different things about it. It seems to me what they're trying to do is say, look, a prophet of God, a messenger of God is supposed to bring news of joy. In this case, they're talking about how Jerusalem had been redeemed. Well, they've just redeemed the city of Nephi that had fallen into the hands of the Lamanites. They've redeemed 
their land, and now there's there should only be good tidings. A prophet brings good tidings. You claim to be a prophet. You're bringing bad tidings. But if they'd have just looked a couple of verses before where they start, this is what they're quoting is Isaiah 52, starting mm-hmm. in verse 7. The chapter is about Zion being redeemed, but just a couple of verses before it points out, now therefore... Uh, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them to howl. Do you remember that from earlier? Uh, that was something that Abinadi already said to them, mm. that they would howl. The Lord would make them howl as a punishment. And my name continually, every day, is blasphemed. Well, that kind of sounds like King Noah's people. And then when he talks about when he jumps into verse seven, this is something that Benedict is going to talk about. They're talking about why people would rejoice and so forth, but it's not for wickedness. So again, that howling is going to happen uh, if they don't. Well, right now there's no way out of it for them. What they can do is avoid complete destruction. That's where they're at now. That's their last hope at this point. And yep. it doesn't look like they're too anxious to take that chance. No. So they've quoted, as you pointed out, these verses from Isaiah 52 to Abinadi. And Abinadi responds. This is chapter 12, verses 25 through 29, starting 25. And now Abinadi said unto them, Are you priests? And pretend to teach this people and to understand the spirit of prophesying and yet desire to know of me what these things mean? I love that line. (laughs) It's so good. Abinadi understands what they're trying to do. And he's not here for that. He's not going to play into this game. And so he's going to show them their own stupidity. He's going to expose their wickedness. I could be wrong here. You know, I talked before about this idea that maybe Abinadi was one of the former priests. He sure seems to be comfortable contending with them. He knows what they should know and what Mm. they don't. He seems to know exactly what to say to them. So I don't know, just a curiosity. But yeah, let's keep going. It it does make an interesting case. Verse 26, I say unto you, woe be unto you for perverting the ways of the Lord. For if ye understand these things, ye have not taught them. Therefore ye have perverted the ways of the Lord. Ye have not applied your hearts to understanding, Therefore, ye have not been wise. Therefore, what teach ye these people? And they said, We teach the law of Moses. And again, he said unto them, If ye teach the law of Moses, why do you not keep it? Slam. Why do you set your hearts upon riches? Why do you commit whoredoms and spend your strength with harlots? Yea, and cause this people to commit sin, that the Lord has caused to send me to prophesy against this people, yea, even a great evil against this people. Ouch. This message to the priests is more potent than the message, it seems to me, than the message he shared with the people. At least it's more focused. Well, it kind of has to be, because the way it should work, right, is that the political leader and the spiritual leader should be working together to keep the people in line. Well, that's what King Benjamin did feeding their hedonism, you know, yeah. they're feeding their their downfall. Yeah. 
Words of Mormon told us that King Benjamin had worked hard his whole life with the prophets to unify the people under righteousness. Well, and to his credit, even Zenith seems to have done that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Noah's own father. Going on, verse 30. Know ye not that I speak the truth? Yea, ye know that I speak the truth. And ye ought to tremble before God. And it shall come to pass that ye shall be smitten for your iniquities. For ye have said that ye teach the law of Moses. And what know ye concerning the law of Moses? Does salvation come by the law of Moses? What say ye? And they answered and said that salvation did come by the law of Moses. But now Abinadi said unto them, I know if ye keep the commandments of God, ye shall be saved. Yea, if ye keep the commandments which the Lord delivered unto Moses in the Mount of Sinai, saying, I am the Lord thy God who hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other God before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything in heaven above, or things which are in the earth beneath. Now Abinadi said unto them, Have ye done all this? I say unto you, Nay, ye have not. And have ye taught this people that they should do all these things? I say unto you, Nay, ye have not. And now when the king had heard these words, he said to his priests, Away with this fellow and slay him. For what have we to do with him? For he is mad. And they stood forth and attempted to lay their hands on him, but he withstood them and said unto them, Touch me not, for God shall smite you if you lay your hands upon me, for I have not delivered the message which the Lord sent me to deliver. Neither have I told you that which he requested that I should tell. Therefore God will not suffer that I shall be destroyed at this time. But I must fulfill the commandments wherewith God hath commanded me. And because I have told you the truth, ye are angry with me. And again, because I have spoken the word of God, ye have judged me that I am mad. Now it came to pass after Abinadi had spoken these words that the people of King Noah durst not lay their hands on him. For the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and his face shone with exceeding luster, even as Moses' did while on the Mount of Sinai while speaking with the Lord. I don't know if this is just a narrator's note on that, but I wonder if that's exactly what they were thinking, if they knew the scriptures well enough to know what that was. There's been an awful lot of references and inferences to the Exodus story throughout this whole few chapters. I'm compelled by the idea that the king can't come up with an answer using reason and so he just insults him. <laughs> That's the classic. Yeah. You know you've won the argument if somebody is like, well, you know. Well, you're ugly. You're ugly, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you're mad. So that's it. You know, we're going to dismiss you because we can't compete with you in thought. This had to be an amazing thing to witness. This is one of the great dramas of the Book of Mormon. And it's just incredible. I appreciate your patience with us dramatizing what we just love. (laughs) Yeah, we really do. It's just incredible. Well, let's keep going. Yeah, verse 7. Ye see that ye have not power to slay me. Therefore, I finish my message. Yea, and I perceive that it cuts you to your hearts because I tell you the truth concerning your iniquities. Does that sound familiar? 
Could it be that in First Nephi 16, do you remember when we read that? Yeah. Where Lemon Nephi explains to his brothers that the guilty taketh the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to their very center? Yeah. Interesting, huh? Mm-hmm. Verse 8. Yea, and my words fill you with wonder and amazement and with anger, but I finish my message, and then it matters not whither I go, if it so be that I am saved. This much I tell you, that what you do with me after this shall be as a type and a shadow of things which are to come. Hmm. Now, here seems to be the last attempt to redeem the king and the priests. Last chance, guys. Hmm. What you do with me is going to be a type and a shadow of things which are to come. Choose wisely. Yeah. And I'd love to say that they chose wisely, but uh, no, not so much. Hmm. So, verse 11, And now I read unto you the remainder of the commandments of God, for I perceive that they are not written on your hearts. Ouch. I perceive that ye have studied and taught iniquity the most part of your lives. <laughs> Words heard, Abinadi. Okay, so what's coming up? If, you, if you're watching the video, I've broken down these, pretty much the next uh, 13, 14, 15, 16 uh, of Abinadi's speech to the people, and I've broken them into categories. We're going to see some Isaiah there. We've got some topics. So this next section up through 26 is basically a primary lesson on the Ten Commandments. Here are the Ten Commandments, and here are some basic explanations of them, because obviously you don't know the basics. So let's start with the basics. Here are the Ten Commandments. And I like to remind everyone, he's speaking to the spiritual leaders of the city. Yeah. (laughs) Can you imagine like a, a deacon or a teacher standing up in a quorum of high priests or perhaps even the quorum of the Twelve, basically explaining to them how the gospel works. Yeah. Because things have gotten so corrupt at that level yeah. that they just don't get it. Verse 25, And it came to pass that after Abinadi had made an end of these sayings, that he said unto them, Have you taught this people that they should observe to do all these things, to keep these commandments? I say unto you, Nay. For if ye had, the Lord would not have caused me to come forth and prophesy evil concerning this people. This is the second time that he's called this out, Mm -hmm. basically reminding them, hey, the reason I'm here is because you guys have screwed up. And if you didn't screw up, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. Verse 27. And now ye have said that salvation cometh by the law of Moses. I say unto you that it is expedient that ye should keep the law of Moses as yet, but I say unto you that the time shall come when it shall no more be expedient to keep the law of Moses. And moreover, I say unto you that salvation doth not come by the law alone. And were it not for the atonement which God himself shall make for the sins and iniquities of his people, that they must unavoidably perish, notwithstanding the law of Moses. Very powerful stuff. Well, in this section, he is laying out what the law, up through 32, he's laying out what the law of Moses is and what it is supposed to do. And then for the rest of the chapter, he will connect it to Christ. And then he will go on from there. So he's set up the stage. He's given us the basics of the law, the Ten Commandments, then the purpose of the law, and then that's going to take us to Christ And that's going to be his focus going forward. And that's always something that is important to remember. 
We have a quote from the Institute Manual. This is from then-elder Dallin H. Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. It's an Enzyme article from March 1994 called Another Testament of Jesus Christ. He says, quote, Men and women unquestionably have impressive powers that can bring to pass great things. But after all our obedience and good works, we cannot be saved from death or the effects of our individual sins without the grace extended by the atonement of Jesus Christ. The Book of Mormon makes this clear. It teaches that salvation doth not come by the law alone. In other words, salvation does not come simply by keeping the commandments. By the law, no flesh is justified. Even those who try to obey and serve God with all their heart, might, mind, and strength are unprofitable servants. Man cannot earn his own salvation, end quote. It's important to remember, even today, you'd be surprised how often this comes up within the church of Jesus Christ. So we go on. Verse 29, And now I say unto you that it was expedient that there should be a law given to the children of Israel, yea, even a very strict law, for they were a stiff-necked people, quick to do iniquity, and slow to remember the Lord their God. Therefore was a law given them, yea, a law of performances and of ordinances, a law which they were to observe strictly from day to day, to keep them in remembrance of God and their duty towards him. But behold, I say unto you that all these things were types of things to come. And now did they understand the law? I say unto you, nay, they did not all understand the law, and this because of the hardness of their hearts, for they understood not that there could not any man be saved except it were through the redemption of God. For behold, did not Moses prophesy unto them concerning the coming of the Messiah, and that God should redeem his people? Yea, and even all the prophets who have prophesied ever since the world began, have they not spoken more or less concerning these things? Have they not said that God himself should come down among the children of men and take upon him the form of man and go forth in mighty power upon the face of the earth? Yea, and have they not said also that he should bring to pass the resurrection of the dead and that he himself should be oppressed and afflicted? Now, This is amazing for several reasons. Number one, we often think about the ancient Israelites as not understanding the law. And Abinadi is in some ways confirming what we we know, that there were some that certainly didn't understand the law. But some did. And certainly enough that they could pass that knowledge on to Abinadi. And it's amazing what they knew. Take a look at the specifics that he talks about here that, I'm sorry, are not clearly in our current Old Testament. Things like that he should come down among the children of men and take upon him the form of man and go forth in mighty power. Things about bringing to pass the resurrection of the dead and that he himself should be oppressed and afflicted. If these things were preached and understood clearly enough, I don't think there would be such a difficulty recognizing the Messiah when he came. That's certainly very possible. Although these folks here, Noah and his people, seem to have done a nice job of, as you pointed out, cherry-picking particular verses. Yeah, we do that. It's that phrase in 34, 
that God himself would come down. That's the phrase that's ultimately they're going to use against him. And one of the reasons I wonder why that's such a powerful, uh, horrible idea for the wicked, and that includes pretty much all of us, is that if God himself would come down and live a mortal life and do it sinlessly and show us the way, it's a real condemnation for those who choose hedonism, the carnal man, you know, that's tough to get around. Well, and it's at the very least humbling, even to the righteous, because we're doing the best that we can. But the best that we can, the best that any of us can do, is not good enough on its own merits. No, this absolutely. The Christ is so important. But see, you can see the notion of having someone come and show us how to live a perfect life. And then completely ignore it. Right. You know, just it's, just do the opposite. I pulled out another quote from the Institute Manual. This is from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland from his book, Christ and the New Covenant. Quote, the modern reader should not see the Mosaic Code anciently or in modern times as simply a tedious set of religious rituals slavishly and sometimes militantly followed by a stiff-necked people who did not accept the Christ and his gospel. This historic covenant given by the hand of God himself was a guide to spirituality, a gateway to Christ. It is crucial to understand that the law of Moses was overlaid upon and thereby included many basic parts of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which had existed before it. It was never intended to be something apart or separated from, and certainly not something antagonistic to, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Its purpose was never to have been different from the higher law. Both were to bring people to Christ, end quote. We need to remember that when we talk about a lot of, especially when we just had New Testament study this last year, it's not the law of Moses that's the problem. It's the people interpreting what the law of Moses meant, particularly those that took it upon themselves to interpret it, yeah. the philosophies of men, as it were. Well, and that's why he's going to defer to Isaiah and say, look, I've testified to you that this is how the law should be interpreted. Now let's take a look at an authoritative source, and for that we'll use Isaiah. It's a short chapter. Do you want to go halvesies on it? Oh, sure. You want to start? Uh, sure. All right. This is such a beautiful chapter, and again, it's one of the most messianic of any of the Old Testament chapters, I think. Yea, even doth Isaiah not say, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquities 
of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no evil, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is one of the most powerful chapters of Isaiah. And if some of those lines sounded familiar to you, and you're familiar at all with Handel's Messiah, we've talked about it before, uh, it's because there are some great pieces from Handel's Messiah that take their text from this chapter. Yes, there are. So the next two chapters are going to be about interpreting Isaiah 52 and 53. Now, remember, they quoted 52 right. to him that was their and challenged him. Yeah. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments. He uh, talks about the purpose of the law of Moses, talks about Christ. And now he quotes the most messianic chapter the next chapter, Isaiah 53. And going forward, he's going to spend time tying those things together. Absolutely. So let's do it. Chapter 15, verse 1. And now Abinadi said unto them, I would that ye should understand that God himself shall come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. And because he dwelleth in flesh, he shall be called the Son of God. And having subjected the flesh to the will of the Father, being the Father and the Son. The Father, because he was conceived by the power of God, and the Son, because of the flesh, thus becoming the Father and Son. And they are one God, yea, the very eternal Father of heaven and of earth. This could be a little confusing for some people. Mm -hmm. So let's just explore it. Uh, all that he's teaching there is very true. And that conversation about the nature of God can be one that's a little complicated, but we've got a couple of sources that can be a starting point. Uh, I think Doctrine and Covenants 93 offers some good insight, and that's connected with your footnote for that concept. Uh, it says, and that I am in the Father. This is the Son speaking. And the Father in me. And the Father and I are one. The Father, because he gave me of his fullness, and the Son, because I was in the world and made flesh my tabernacle and dwelt among the sons of men. We get really tied up in certain titles that are important. Mm. Uh, you know, when we talk about God being one, does that mean he has to be a single object? Or 
is it a biblical oneness like Adam and Eve were supposed to be one? Like Paul says, the human, the church is like a body, many parts, but one body. What is that oneness we're talking about there? Well, and certainly, or the intercessory prayer in John 17, where Jesus is praying that his apostles should be one. As like like the, you the, and the Father, Father and I. Yeah, exactly, are yeah. one. Now, to help clarify things, way back on June 30th, 1916, under the leadership of President Joseph F. Smith, remember the F? <laughs> Brethren had set forth a detailed statement called The Father and the Son, a doctrinal exposition by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. Very much akin to the family uh, proclamation to the world, a very similar type of statement made back in 1916. I'm going to quote a portion of this. This was actually quoted in the Enzyme, April 2002, and also the Institute Manual. Uh, but it is uh, apropos to our discussion here. Quote, Father as creator. Scriptures that refer to God in any way as the Father of the heavens and the earth are to be understood as signifying that God is the maker, the organizer, the creator of the heavens and the earth. With this meaning, as the context shows in every case, Jehovah, who is Jesus Christ, the son of Elohim, is called the Father and even the very eternal Father of heaven and of earth. Jesus Christ the Father of those who abide in his gospel. Another sense in which Jesus Christ is regarded as the Father has reference to the relationship between him and those who accept his gospel and thereby become heirs of eternal life. To his faithful servants in the present dispensation, the Lord has said, Fear not, little children, for you are mine, and I have overcome the world, and you are of them that my Father hath given me. Jesus Christ, the Father, by divine investiture or authority. Jesus, the Son, has represented and yet represents Elohim, his Father, in power and authority. Thus, the Father placed his name upon the Son. And Jesus Christ spoke and ministered in and through the Father's name. And so far as power, authority, and godship are concerned, his words and acts were and are those of the Father, end quote. So hopefully that helps a little. So going on, verse 5, And thus the flesh becoming subject to the Spirit, or the Son to the Father, being one God, suffereth temptation, and yieldeth not to the temptation, but suffereth himself to be mocked, and scourged, and cast out, and disowned by his people. And after all this, after working many mighty miracles among the children of men, he shall be led, yea, even as Isaiah said, as a sheep before the shearer is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Yea, even so he shall be led, crucified, and slain, the flesh becoming subject even unto death, the will of the Son being swallowed up in the will of the Father." And thus God breaketh the bands of death, having gained the victory over death, giving the Son power to make intercession for the children of men, having ascended into heaven, having the bowels of mercy, being filled with compassion towards the children of men, standing betwixt them and justice, having broken the bands of death, 
taken upon himself their iniquity and their transgressions, having redeemed them and satisfied the demands of justice. That's just, wow. So what an interesting thing to discuss when you're studying this is what do we learn about Jesus Christ from these verses? What feelings do we get? You know, John's wow is a great, these are so powerful as they relate to the atonement of Jesus Christ. And let's remember, he's prophesying about this over a century before Christ will be born. Yeah. Yeah, he would never see this ministry, and yet they seem to have understood so much of what was going to happen. Absolutely. And the visual format going forward, you'll see that I've marked main areas where he's quoted. He actually quotes little tiny pieces of Isaiah throughout, but I've marked those Isaiah sections in this next portion, 10 through 18, which he talks about what it is to be the seed of Christ. And try to listen for the little snippets of Isaiah. They show up quite frequently. Verse 10, And now I say unto you, Who shall declare his generation? Do you remember when we read That's that? That's Isaiah. This is Isaiah 53. Behold, I say unto you, that when his soul has been made an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. And now what say ye? And who shall be his seed? Behold, I say unto you, that whosoever has heard the words of the prophets, yea, all the holy prophets who have prophesied concerning the coming of the Lord, I say unto you, that all those who have hearkened unto their words and believed that the Lord would redeem his people and have looked forward to that day for a remission of their sins, I say unto you, that these are his seed, or they are heirs of the kingdom of God. For these are they whose sins he has borne. These are they for whom he has died, to redeem them from their transgressions. And now, are they not his seed? Yea. Just a quick pause, if I could. I'm sorry to interrupt it, but sitting here and thinking how amazing it is that I've got a prophet of God who's giving me a commentary on this one couple of phrases in Isaiah. I, you know, I may be wondering, what does it mean when he says that in verse 10, when he repeats, when his soul has been made an offering for sin, we shall he shall see his seed? Well, what does that mean? Well, he's just explaining it to us. So, I mean, enjoy as you read these sections of, of Abinadi. It's a real gift. They're the best. Yea, and are not the prophets, every one that has opened his mouth to prophesy, that has not fallen into transgression, Stab. I mean, all the holy prophets ever since the world began, I say unto you that they are his seed. So that's, of course, including Abinadi himself. But I don't think it's including it the priest. No, no, I don't think so. Could I have been them. making that very clear. Yeah. So verse 14, and these are they who have published peace. There's that Isaiah again. As a matter of fact, it's their Isaiah from Isaiah 52. Remember that? Who have brought good tidings of good, who have published salvation, and said unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. And oh, how beautiful upon the mountains were their feet. And again, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those that are still publishing peace. And again, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who shall hereafter publish peace, yea, from this time henceforth and forever. 
And behold, I say unto you, This is not all. For, oh, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that is the founder of peace, yea, even the Lord, who has redeemed his people, yea, him who has granted salvation unto his people. So there's the answer. There's the reply to their query. Now, he'll expand this going forward. The next section, 19 through 28, he's going to talk about the first resurrection, what that means. He's going to quote some more Isaiah from Isaiah 52. Again, going on with what they were talking about. He's doing a great job of giving them context to their own Mm -hmm. reference that they popped out of context. Yeah, he didn't just sit here and think, well, okay, you guys are trying to trick me into saying something stupid so that I'll be worthy of death. I'm going to try to teach you one last time. I'm reaching out to you. This is your last chance. Well, he's going to wrap things up in chapter 16. We've still got a little bit of Isaiah poking through, but then he really offers a powerful testimony. And it's always great to read how a prophet wraps up his lesson, his teachings, his argument. Absolutely. So here is some amazing summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 16, this is verse 6. And now, if Christ had not come into the world, speaking of things to come as though they had already come, remember now, we're over a century before Christ, there could have been no redemption. And if Christ had not risen from the dead or have broken the bands of death that the grave should have no victory and that death should have no sting, there could have been no resurrection. But there is a resurrection. Therefore, the grave hath no victory, and the sting of death is swallowed up in Christ. He is the light and the life of the world. Yea, a light that is endless, that can never be darkened. Yea, and also a life which is endless, that there can be no more death. Even this mortal shall put on immortality, and this corruption shall put on incorruption, and shall be brought to stand before the bar of God, to be judged of him according to their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. If they be good, to the resurrection of endless life and happiness, and if they be evil, to the resurrection of endless damnation, being delivered up to the devil, who hath subjected them, which is damnation." having gone according to their own carnal wills and desires, having never called upon the Lord while the arms of mercy were extended towards them. For the arms of mercy were extended towards them, and they would not, they being warned of their iniquities, and yet they would not depart from them. And they were commanded to repent, and yet they would not repent. And now ought ye not to tremble and repent of your sins? And remember that only in and through Christ ye can be saved? Therefore, if ye teach the law of Moses, also teach that it is a shadow of those things which are to come. Teach them that redemption cometh through Christ the Lord, who is the very eternal Father. Amen. That's it. Listen to that. That's incredible. Listen to that pleading at the end. This is not a man defending himself. This is not a man defending Jesus Christ. This is a man trying his best, his absolute best, to try to get these people, King Noah and King Noah's priests, to realize, 
you're doing it wrong. Well, and it you will lead to, to destruction. You need to turn it around. Unfortunately, yes, that's true. But it, it's so cool because like any good prophet, he wants to get the teachers squared away so that they can heal the people. Exactly. So in chapter 17, And now it came to pass that when Abinadi had finished these sayings, that the king commanded that the priests should take him and cause that he should be put to death. But there was one among them whose name was Alma, he also being a descendant of Nephi, and he was a young man. And he believed the words which Abinadi had spoken, for he knew concerning the iniquity which Abinadi had testified against them. Therefore he began to plead with the king that he would not be angry with Abinadi, but suffer that he might depart in peace. But the king was more wroth, and caused that Alma should be cast out from among them, and sent his servants after him that they might slay him. But he fled from before them, and hid himself that they found him not. And he, being concealed for many days, did write all the words which Abinadi had spoken. Now, I have to suspect that it's actually Alma's account of Abinadi's trial that we're reading, or at least an abridgment of it. Yeah, that must be. That must be the case. You know, and I, it was such a powerful story. I hate to introduce a little bit of a nerd thing back in verse two, but this notion that he was a young man is the only thing really that gives us a sense of what date that this is happening. Because unlike most people, we actually know what year Alma dies. Uh, at the end of Mosiah chapter 29, second to the last verse, it, it says, or third to the last, but it's, it's at the end of the chapter. It says he dies at age 82, and we know what year that is, so we can backtrack. And if we do an estimate of what it would be to be a young man and a priest here, it gives us at least a ballpark of what date this is happening. Well, and getting back to the story, Alma escapes. But it's assumed, certainly, that the rest who remain are ready to put Abinadi to death, and they do. We'll talk about it. But the influence that this Alma, this young man, has is incredible. And in fact, we will talk quite a bit about that in the next few lessons. There was a quote that I grabbed from the Old Gospel Doctrine Manual about the importance of maybe just one convert. This comes from President Gordon B. Hinckley from the teachings of Gordon B. Hinckley. This story says, quote, you don't know how much good you can do. You can't foresee the results of the efforts you put in. Years ago, President Charles A. Callis, then a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, but who previously was president of the Southern States Mission for 25 years, told me this story. He said that he had a missionary in the southern United States who came in to get his release at the conclusion of his mission. His mission president said to him, have you had a good mission? He said, no. How is that? Well, I haven't had any results from my work. I have wasted my time and my father's money. It's been a waste of time. Brother Callis said, haven't you baptized anyone? He said, I baptized only one person during the two years that I've been here. That was a 12-year-old boy up in the back hollows of Tennessee. He went home with a sense of failure. Brother Callis said, I decided to follow that boy who had been baptized. 
I wanted to know what became of him. I followed him through the years. He became the Sunday school superintendent, and he eventually became the branch president. He married. He moved off the little tenant farm on which he and his parents before him had lived and got a piece of ground of his own and made it fruitful. He became the district president. He sold that piece of ground in Tennessee and moved to Idaho and bought a farm along the Snake River and prospered there. His children grew. They went on missions. They came home. They had children of their own who went on missions. Brother Callis continued, I have just spent a week up in Idaho looking up every member of that family that I could find and talking to them about their missionary service. I discovered that as the result of the baptism of that one little boy in the back hollows of Tennessee by a missionary who thought he had failed, more than 1,100 people have come into the church. You never can foretell the consequences of your work, my beloved brethren and sisters, when you serve as missionaries. End quote. I love that story. Yeah, I love that too. And I think one of the things that is so impactful for me personally is that it's very similar to our story. And by our story, I mean my brother and I. The reason that we are involved in the church today, the reason that we were brought up in the church was because of the diligent service of a couple of missionaries serving in central Wisconsin in the mid-1960s and had taught an 18-year-old young woman who was our mother. And she found the church and married someone and introduced him to the gospel and raised her children, many of which served missions. Five of the kids served missions. Yes, and went on to serve in other capacity. The fact that you're listening to this podcast today is due to the service of these missionaries, and we are very grateful. We sure are. There's been real blessings that have come into our lives from that service. Uh, I served in Utah, in uh, mainly the Salt Lake City South area as a missionary. And you might notice that today there's a lot of members of the church there. (laughs) You're welcome. Uh, Speaking of pride, getting back to the story. (laughs) Okay, so they take a bit of die. They've got to come up with something. And uh, they they put them in prison. Three days, they're working to try to figure out what's going to, what are they going to do? They finally come up with a plan. It's amazing it took them three days to come up with this. Verse 7, he said unto him, Abinadi, we have found an accusation against thee, and thou art worthy of death. For thou hast said that God himself should come down among the children of men. And now for this cause, thou shalt be put to death. Unless thou wilt recall the words which thou hast spoken evil concerning me and my people. Now, how that stuff fits together, I don't know. Uh, Yeah, I, I love how he just has to reject that he condemned the king and the priests, and that somehow washes over him saying that God himself should come down among the people. Yeah. <laughs> You've spoken blasphemy. Now stop saying mean things about us. Yes. Uh, okay, so now Abinadi said unto him, I say unto you, I will not recall the words which I have spoken unto you concerning this people, for they are true. And that ye may know of their surety, 
I have suffered myself that I have fallen into your hands. Yea, and I will suffer even until death, and I will not recall my words, and they shall stand as a testimony against you, and if ye slay me, ye will shed innocent blood, and this also shall stand as a testimony against you at the last day. And now King Noah was about to release him, for he feared his word, for he feared that the judgments of God would come upon him. But the priests lifted up their voices against him and began to accuse him, saying, He has reviled the king. Therefore the king was stirred up in anger against him, and he delivered him up that he might be slain. It's amazing what bad friends will do. Yep. Yep. Good friends will build up. Bad friends will lead to utter destruction. Indeed. Verse 13, And it came to pass that they took him and bound him and scourged his skin with faggots, yea, even unto death. Now I want to talk about this for a minute. First of all, faggots, we know that as a negative slang word now, but back in the day and for many, many centuries in English, it meant a bundle of sticks or twigs or small branches of trees used for fuel. I pulled that from the 1828 Webster's. To scourge is to whip a lash consisting of a strap or cord, an instrument of punishment or discipline. So, okay, I get that. But then in verse 14, it mentions flames. There was no fire talked about in verse 13. Where did that come from? There's been a lot of discussion about this among uh, Book of Mormon scholars and some really interesting dialogue that I won't go into too deeply here, but you'll definitely want to check out at Book of Mormon Central, the Know Why, number 96. This talks about a form of punishment that the Aztecs uh, were known for using in which these uh, sticks that you're basically poking and prodding the skin were on fire. So basically, it's like as if you're taking a torch that's on fire and you are branding uh, a person who's tied to a pole, this type of thing, until they die. Uh, it's not very pleasant. Uh, certainly, it would be not something that I would expect someone to continue talking during this kind of punishment. But this kind of shows what kind of person Abinadi was. Yeah. Verse 14, And now when the flames began to scorch him, he cried unto them, saying, Behold, even as ye have done unto me, so shall it come to pass that thy seed shall cause that many shall suffer the pains that I do suffer, even the pains of death by fire, and this because they believe in the salvation of the Lord their God. Now just a quick pause here. There are several of Abinadi's prophecies that will be referred back to throughout not only Messiah but Alma and maybe even beyond that. These are significant prophecies and it's happening while he's dying. So pay close attention. Verse 16, And it will come to pass that ye shall be afflicted with all manner of diseases because of your iniquities. Yea, and ye shall be smitten on every hand and shall be driven and scattered to and fro, even as a wild flock is driven by wild and ferocious beasts. And in that day ye shall be hunted, and ye shall be taken by the hand of your enemies, and then ye shall suffer as I suffer, the pains of death by 
fire. Thus God executeth judgment upon those that destroy his people. O God, receive my soul. And now, when Abinadi had said these words, he fell, having suffered death by fire, yea, having been put to death, because he would not deny the commandments of God, having sealed the truth of his words by his death. Wow. So, yeah, so ends Abinadi's amazing story. A quick quote that I grabbed from the old gospel doctor manual from President Ezra Taft Benson, uh, General Conference, October 1985. He says, quote, Christ changes men, and changed men can change the world. Men changed for Christ will be captained by Christ. Men captained by Christ will be consumed in Christ. Their will is swallowed up in his will. They do always those things that please the Lord. Not only would they die for the Lord, but more importantly, they want to live for him. End quote. That's Abinadi. Yeah, he's a powerful example and that his influence will be felt through uh, not just Alma, but we're going to find Limhi's people in particular. It's fascinating that a man named Gideon is going to quote Abinadi. He may not have acted on what Abinadi said at the time, but he remembered. You never understand. You never really know the influence that you have. Just a note on the prophecy that he gives in verses 15 through 19. A cursory reading may lead you to think that this is a curse for King Noah. It's not. You can tell from the story that although King Noah pushed the button, as it were, the people that really led to the death of Abinadi were the priests. This prophecy is tailor-made for them. It really doesn't apply to King Noah at all. So if you look at the details of it, you'll see that those things become fulfilled as we get into Alma 25. But this is specific for the priest. Noah has already had his condemnation earlier, and it will be fulfilled, but this one is specific to the priests. Yep, and if King Noah had any kind of spine or leadership, that certainly would have sealed the fate of the priests, but unfortunately yep. not so much. There's a great quote that I found in the Institute Manual from Elder Robert D. Hales about Abinadi that I want to leave you with. This is from General Conference, April 1996. He says, quote, what a powerful example Abinadi should be to all of us. He courageously obeyed the Lord's commandments, even though it cost him his life. Prophets of all dispensations have willingly put their lives on the line and with courage have done the will and proclaimed the word of God. The prophet Joseph Smith went like a lamb to the slaughter, never wavering as he fulfilled the Lord's commandments. And think of our Savior's example. He endured to the end, fulfilling his divine mission and completing the atoning sacrifice for all mankind. Let us follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ and his prophets, past and present. It may not be required of us to give our lives as martyrs, as did many of the prophets. What is required is our obedience to the Lord's commandments and our faithfulness to the covenants we have made with him." End quote. And with that, we'll finish up for this episode. Boy, it's been great to go over this with you. Yeah, thanks for being a part of this. And I hope you found exciting new things in the scriptures we did as we went through it again. So uh, keep it up. Keep reading. 
If you haven't read this week's reading, you'll want to read it. It's some of the best reading in the Book of Mormon. It's, it's, it's really wonderful. great. So we'll look forward to talking to you more about the rest of the story in our next episode. Until then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. <laughs>